for your word and your kindness to us, Lord, your grace, your just the vastness of who you are, Lord, that uh, the more we read in, in your word and the more we learn, the more we realize that there's no way we can understand or comprehend how magnificent and how wonderful and glorious you are. And Lord, we thank you for what we do know and uh, teach your hearts, Lord, as we continue to to learn and to contemplate your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just by a bit of review, um, going back a few weeks, well, more than that now, but uh, from the first time I, I taught, um, we were talking about that God owns everything. He is, um, everything is created by him. Everything, he is the owner by the fact that he created. <clears throat> um, he didn't have to purchase it from somebody else, you know, who did the work. It was all him. Um, he is the supreme authority over all of creation from uh, humanity as a whole, but again, down to all animals, every molecule, every atom. He controls it all and he owns it all. And ownership means different things in different cultures, but uh, and uh, the general idea I think is is valid and in most that if that you can own things in most cultures. Now, how free freely others can tap into it is another story, but in God's case, no one can mess with his what he owns and what he has created despite all the efforts. He has a sovereign plan for all of his creation. It can't be stopped, it can't be delayed. It will be accomplished exactly as he intended. And it's all done for his glory. He's got a plan for his creation. All of it that we, the parts that we don't understand, the parts that we don't know, the angels, the principalities, the powers, the rulers of darkness that are spiritual, they're all under his plan, all under his guidance, all under his will. And his plan is going to be accomplished no matter what happens around that plan or in that plan. And that's something important to consider, isn't it? And I know we all have. There's never a plan B, certainly never a plan C or D. God's plan is the plan, and it will happen. And a very simple, a very simple example, you send Junior to the grocery store around the corner, your little kid or your whatever age kid, and you say, I need these things for supper for your brothers and sisters. I need milk and whatever. And Johnny, sorry, uh, how about Butch, Buster, some other name that nobody uses. Um, so Buster goes out the door and he doesn't come back. No bread and you're sitting there waiting and the kids are screaming, I want my milk, whatever. So the plan there obviously went awry. And he might show up and say, ah, I didn't feel like getting it, or I got distracted, or I got lost, or I fell and hurt my knee, or whatever. Whatever story, but the plans that st you still need those groceries. So now you got to come up with plan B, or plan C, or whatever, or you go yourself. God is never frustrated like that. If I choose to disobey and go my own way, God is not astounded. He's not surprised. He knew I would do that just because he knows everything and he's outside of time. So he can look at things that way. A very simple example, but there's no plan B for God. 
talked also about submission and blessing, that it's very clear in scripture that we submit to God who is supreme. And if we do and as we do, and this was given an example of uh, Israel as I read those verses from Leviticus, that chapter 26 shows both sides of this. If you obey, I will bless you and you will find blessing in life because of your obedience. If you disobey, you will find death. Physical death, absolutely, perhaps. Um, but if you disobey and you show contempt for God, God's, what God is having you do, and in this case, Israel, it would bring death. I've used those words here and there about our attitude toward God. And I, I don't have those here in front of me, but I'm just off the cuff of disdain, you know, when, and they're in, they're in Leviticus there in that chapter, but in other places as well, um, where God says, not only have you rebelled against me, but you despise me, you disdain me, and you can get your thesaurus out and you can go down and every one of those words would be some form of a description of how people just say, I want nothing to do with your plan, God. I've done that sacrifice thing before, I'm not doing it anymore. Or, you know, we're supposed to go to battle and wipe out these people. We're not doing it. We're keeping the cows, we're keeping the sheep, whatever, you know. And on and on and on, we see that. And it's a partial obedience, but overall it's a major disobedience in each case because it's not done completely as God had said to do it. So we either submit to God and his plan and his will for our lives in our daily life, or we just show contempt for God. And nobody, you may not see contempt that I might have in certain areas of my life where I just say, you know, I don't, I don't want to monkey with that God. I'm just, just keep, forget it, quit reminding me. And the Lord sends somebody else along to remind me. I read something, I remember something, whatever the Lord keeps poking saying, hey, I need you to do this. I want you to do this. My will is that you do this. And we can despise God by not doing it and going our own way. So, I, and I did just a quick review of those, of the, the story of the Nazi city police who were used to murder Jews entire families, all ages, during, during uh, World War II. And these were just common men. They hadn't joined the Nazis. They may not believe in any of that. They were just common cops on the corner directing traffic. Um, but they were dispatched to become these groups who would murder, mass murder Jews. And without going through any more detail beyond that, just as a reminder, when they were interviewed, and some of them didn't do it, they refused, but most of them did. And when they were interviewed later and asked about it, because you know many years went by and the, all these men were still alive, so over after the war, some of them were interviewed, many of them were, and how could you do this? How could you do this to people? Just, you know, no ideology involved. How could you cope? And uh, the most common answer to that was, I was a victim. So they themselves saw themselves as, I was forced to do it, or I felt I needed to do it somehow. So they were doing these heinous murders and instead of looking at it and saying, it was totally wrong, I should have never done it, or I'm not going to do this, or making a stand, they looked at themselves as a victim instead of the true victims and 
rationalized it and saying, I'm not, I'm doing this, but I'm rebelling against it, I don't want to do it, and it's those guys that are making me do it, or some other kind of a thing, but they coped by covering their own hides. And that's not uncommon, is it? It happens right here in Genesis, and it goes on every day. So that's a quick review. But um, that does take us, and I'm not going to go through all of uh, the story of the Garden of Eden. I did that briefly uh, before. But just to talk a little bit about the results and the consequences that Adam and Eve brought on themselves and on us and on humanity and the challenge, as some might say, to God's plan, which it was not a challenge. But in the story, we've got Eve, we've got Adam, we've got God, the creator, the owner, God most high, and the deceiver, the snake, Lucifer, four beings. Eve was deceived, and she could say, hey, I'm just a victim. It wasn't my fault. You know, I just, I didn't know. Adam participated. He was right there, and he went ahead and he ate. He made a decision. He saw what was going on. And not only did he disobey in that sense, but he disobeyed in another sense as well, which we'll mention here in a minute. So the result of the rebellion of the fact that they ate this fruit was that they did come to know good and evil at whatever level. Their eyes were opened. It says that they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid and they tried to cover themselves. They recognized to some degree their plight that they were now exposed, especially when God comes looking for them. And I don't know what happened to the snake, if he just beat it out of there, but he was there when God was talking to him. So maybe he could not leave, however that worked. Um, but the deceiver was there. But they were trapped, they were guilty, something was wrong. And again, nothing is, there's nothing creative about me to come up with anything that's new about any of these stories. But in one of the, one of the angles I was reading about this, and I had never given it any thought, but perhaps, you know how in the, in the Old Testament it talks about well, the New Testament as well, but Moses, John, you mentioned it this morning, the glow of Moses's face in the presence of God. Could it be that Adam and Eve had that glow when they were in fellowship with God, that they reflected this light, which all of a sudden was put out and everything got dark, <laughs> especially when Eve looked at Adam and said, What's, what happened to you? You know, you're not so shiny anymore. Um, but just real quick, uh, and Moses says, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Jesus is the transfiguration. And I'm saying these just these examples because it does give some credence to the possibility that these human beings, freshly created, freshly minted, had some kind of glory that they were reflected from God himself. So in Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17, his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. So here he was just like one of the guys, but when this transfiguration began or when it happened, he was instantly shining. Uh, the angel at Jesus' tomb Angels come from the presence of God, right? Um, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone from the opening of the tomb, and he sat on it. 
The angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. Came from the presence of God. And this one I hadn't caught, but Stephen, this was actually before he was stoned, Stephen and Acts. Um, but as he began to preach to the Sanhedrin and, you know, that message that he covered all of history, it seems like, hit all the high spots, reviewing with the Sanhedrin who Christ was, Moses and all these other guys that he covered. But as he began to speak, Acts 16, 15, or 6, 15 says, and fixing their gaze on him, the Sanhedrin, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I don't know that angels have particular, you know, big noses or floppy ears or whatever, but certainly coming from the presence of God, they would be shining, right? And Stephen, even before they decided to stone him, before they got worked up to stone him, that was shining in his face. And as we know that the story says, as he was being stoned, he looked up to heaven. And so I wouldn't put it past that, that in that setting of two human beings standing in front of God, relating to God, and the glow with Moses that hung around, didn't it? Like, I don't remember how long it was, but um, he had to have that veil on him for a while. I mean, it was kind of like somebody, you know, you're deer in the headlights kind of a thing, like, Moses, come on, you know, I just want to ask you about lunch, you know, and you can't even, you know, I can't even see anything. But they were accustomed to it, right? Your eyes get used to it. I don't know about headlights, but your eyes get used to the light. And we can eventually like, okay, I can see you now, you know, you can tone down the lights, but yeah, I, I can see better than I first could. But yet that didn't happen with God. When they looked at God, it radiated. It didn't go away and it didn't dim down. So I think that makes sense. And there's so much about this. I'm talking to my sister. She's in Paraguay. Um, but talking to her on the phone yesterday, and there's so much of that we have questions. If you've ever read, and I know you have, but if you, you know, as you think through the first 11 chapters, particularly of Genesis, there's a lot of blanks in there. You think for 1,600 years between the flood and creation, there's nothing. I mean, you know, we probably got, what, a couple years of information, perhaps, of happenings. When they jump through the generations, that's covering big leaps. But we don't know anything, really. And that bugs me. But, because I'm very curious, but I have to live with it. Or didn't told me anything yet. And you probably won't. So they sin, they despise God, particularly Adam, but certainly Eve. I don't know if Adam gave any argument and said, you know what, we really shouldn't be listening to this. Let's get out of here. Or if he just stood there silent, I don't know. Either way, I'm irritated because you'd think he would speak up. He knew God longer than Eve did. For whatever length of time, we don't know. But it would have been good if he had had a spine and said something. One of my sons used to have, remember, no fear t-shirts, you know. Love the shirt, I love the shirt. He wouldn't give it to me. But it had a picture of a slug you know, like a snail on the back without a shell. And it said, it must be hard living without a spine. Oh, I want that t-shirt. Because that's true, isn't it? It's, you, you look at things, circumstances, and you say, man, alive, somebody get a spine here. Somebody speak up, somebody do something. And that's what I would hope for Adam. But yet, I'm as human as he was. Well, not quite, because he was created on the spot, but I might have been the same way and despised God as I do in other ways, perhaps, in my life. So all that came down 
And then what, what happens is there are consequences, the results, the, there's no hiding sin, is there? You can't get away from it. It'll nag you, especially us as Christians. The Holy Spirit will poke on you, he'll beat on your head, he'll trip you up, whatever, you know, that he will not let us go, thankfully. But we sure try to get away, and many folks do work at getting away, and they just make the decision. If you think about it, any of us could leave here and make a decision against what we know to be true and what we know to be right. We could make a decision, go out here, and get ourselves thrown in jail for any kind of crime. Just because I made the decision that that car over there, I just decided I want that car and I go take it, whatever. We could do anything like that. By God's grace, I don't think that way. And we don't think that way. Because the Holy Spirit continues to correct us. Now, if we sin isolates also, right? That's why Adam and Eve hid. You go away, you get away from the group. You do things that nobody else knows about. And in your isolation, we can rationalize and justify, and we can convince ourselves that I can do this. But there will always be consequences. And it may not be a lightning bolt. It could be. But it could just be a life lost to God's will. A life that is really not worth living in the picture of, and I'm not encouraging you know, suicide or anything like that. I'm just saying, an empty life as a believer. I couldn't think of a more horrid thing. And that's why God in his grace has given us the opportunity to be reconciled to him through Christ and the word to be guided and fellowship. Um, as, as Al opened, you know, and, and uh, speaking about us being of one mind and in unity, you know, coming to the Lord and that. And that's, that's it. We need each other. We cannot be the Lone Ranger in life, spiritually or in any other way, you know. You can, you can manage, you know, it's the old, I like the stories about, uh, I can't think of any of their names right now, of course, the old frontier men, the mountain men, and the, you know, they'd go out there and they'd catch a few beavers and they'd live off the land and they'd explore and leave, make trails and opened up the West, you know, and like, oh, that's great. That'd be cool for about, you know, a day or two. And then I think, you know, I don't think I like this anymore, you know. Um, I'd like the adventure, but the adventure always has the stuff like, you know, you're sleeping in wet clothes and, you know, you don't have any heat and you can't start a fire and all that stuff. But it always has consequences, sin does. And we isolate ourselves, we make all these efforts to get away, but it'll always have consequences. And in this, this case, being the first humans, couldn't we give them a break? Don't, you know, like Adam and Eve, I mean, it's, come on. Um, you know, they're, they're good people, you know, they, they really didn't mean it. You know, I mean, we could come up with all kinds of, of ways, which I'm not gonna be able to find, um, no, they really didn't know, they didn't really understand, you know, they only knew God for a little bit. Um, they haven't really seen, yeah, he's the creator, but Adam saw all of creation after it was done, right? Day six, he comes along and everything was already there, so he didn't actually see God create it, but yet he had some sort of a relationship, and I'm not sure how long before Eve came along. But he knew God a little bit longer, at least, than she did. But they could see his majesty, and particularly if he was glowing, and he caused them to glow with his glory. They could see that that made a difference. But then again, they'd never seen anything different. So you could say, ah, you know, yeah, give them a break. You know, but don't be hard on them. You know, just slap their hand. Say, don't do it again. But again, someone mentioned this morning the holiness of God. And that demands, that demands that sin is dealt with. And by God's grace, you know, this is the interesting thing, and I don't know how it works, but, you know, the Old Testament, how God looked ahead 
in forgiving those. He looked ahead to Christ. He knew, and again, he's outside time. So in other words, it's like all at the same time happening from an outside of time situation. But yet he knew Christ was crucified, and I don't remember how that verse goes, but before the foundations of the world, right? It says something along those lines. But that was already a done deal, even though physically in this world, Christ had not been crucified yet, nor resurrected. But Adam and Eve's sin was what started this whole thing and got me, I'm a victim, into this mess. How about Adam being a victim? Yeah, he was a victim. I was a victim of my wife, the wife that you gave me. He said it. You know, I really didn't want to do it, but she twisted my arm. You know, I wasn't going to get lunch if I didn't, you know. Whatever. As simple as life would have been for them, that they didn't have to cook. Well, they probably, had, I don't know what they did to eat. They were eating off the land. God was feeding them, right? They had it made in the Garden of Eden. And we have the idea that the Garden of Eden is only a portion of creation um, because it gives a location of it in some senses of egg, but yet there was other parts of creation that was out there, which, when they, which they went to when they were kicked out of Eden. They didn't just go out into a new, you know, new world that God just made up for them, but it was not Eden. And it was a place of struggle and it was a place of harshness and there were probably wild animals out there too, not only the ones that were in the garden. Even though they didn't eat meat, that was good. But it was not the Garden of Eden where they went. So we can't give them a break. Um, we can't give ourselves a break because we have the word. We have no excuse. You think about people in missions. How is it possible? Would God send unsaved people who never heard the name of Jesus Christ, who never heard of God, as we know in the Bible, would God send them to hell? Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. But as a human, I think, that, eh, that's really not fair. But then I'm thinking the same thing about Eve. Couldn't he just slap their hand and give them a break? You know, they didn't really know. But it's fair because God is holy and God is just and he demands, he demands obedience. And he expects it and he needs, and he should get it. So, the consequences. Three curses. Three curses came along. Let's talk about these briefly. And I can see I'm not going to get very far, but I hope to cover these easily. So I looked up curse, the word curse. If you've ever, you got the, the Strong's app, you know, whatever they are, you know, the different ones, you can look up verses and what they mean in Greek or Hebrew, whatever, you know, whatever part of the Bible you're studying. And then I learned a word that I never heard of in English. Um, so the word curse, that God was pronouncing these curses on the serpent. Interestingly, it says on the woman, doesn't say on Eve, and it says on Adam, names him, and through Adam, the curse on the ground. Um, in that context of cursing Adam was a curse of the ground. So the curses, and so here's the meaning of it's a verb, the Hebrew number in Strong's Concordance is H779. I'm sure you knew that already. I got to make sure I pronounce this right. To execrate is what curse means. To execrate. To bitterly curse and intensifies to bitterly curse. Um, An example I gave, the men, it was just a, I don't, know, I don't know where they got the example, but the men were execrated as dangerous and corrupt. They were cursed, bitterly cursed as dangerous and corrupt. But here's the other words from the thesaurus portion of trying to explain what execrate means. God cursed these, these things that 
um, we're going to read about, to revile, to denounce, to decry, to condemn, to vilify, to detest, to loathe something, to hate, to despise, to regard with disgust, to feel disgust, um, to have an aversion, revulsion, anathematize. That's a word we hear, anathema, used in different portions of, of the Bible. Um, that something is anathema and it's a curse, just like what these things are here that God did in the garden. So there's three that we'll mention here that are there. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. God's curse upon the serpent. I never know what to call him, it, serpent, snake. We know behind the scenes, Satan, Lucifer, the deceiver. We know who it was. I don't know how that worked. Again, I think I'd mentioned that if you read some of the old, older written things that the uh, Jews believe that the serpent was more like a dragon, but he was beautiful, he was gorgeous. He shined, he walked. Um, uh, just not only was he more, um, I can't think of the word, but he was kind of smarter, so to speak, than the other animals, as what the Bible says here. Um, but, yeah, I still can't think of the word. Um, so he could have been deceiving, you know, by the looks. You think, wow, this is, this, this is the guy's impressive, you know. If God himself was glowing from his gloriousness and this guy was shining, well, it wasn't obviously his from God's, uh, like God, but he was shiny and, you know, all of that stuff. So he was attractive to look at. So the Lord said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, this deceit and the lies. One other thing I'll throw in there. I had never given this thought anymore or before either, but some believe strongly that this is when Satan fell. That Lucifer fell it was at this incident that he wasn't thrown out of heaven 10 days before this or whatever that this was the final, this was when he just, he became the deceiver. And uh, so it was in this story that he rebelled against God. Um, yeah, there's other things I could say there, but I'll not do it. Because you have done this, talking to the serpent, you are cursed more than all cattle. I didn't think that the cattle would get cursed, but he was, they were cursed because they said, you'll be, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. So even then cattle were looked at as sheep were, you know, more of domesticated kind of animals, but yet other animals that were not domesticated, perhaps that were more independent just by nature or by size or whatever, um, they were referred to as beasts of the field. So you're cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly, you shall go. So he's cursed more, however much that is, than the others. The other thing is on your belly, you shall go. And you can read and, you know, if you look at the skeleton of a snake, you know, there's certain bones that perhaps could have been wings or whatever. I don't know. And it doesn't, I don't care. It's, he wasn't on his belly, but now he is. However, that worked out. On your belly, you shall go and you shall eat dust. Now, he probably didn't literally eat dust, but that's exactly what this says, that you will eat dust. We know that snakes eat other things, but the Bible says you will eat dust all the days of your life. And here's where it gets interesting and in what we're dealing with today. And I will put enmity in other words, I, you will be enemies with, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You're never going to work together. You're never going to like each other. You will never be friends. And it's a good thing that God did this because it would be very easy for some to sidle up to this 
wonderful, you know, I mean, as they do with rock stars, you know, and uh, whatever, you know, famous people, people try and get to know them and get to hang out with them and everything like that. But God says, you will, there will be enmity between you and the woman. He doesn't say this about Adam. I don't know why. Between enmity and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So her kids, her descendants, obviously Adam's descendants, that there will be enmity, there will be fierce disagreement and disconnection between you. And the thing that I wonder about and that I have no answer for, I got some guesses. Why would he say between Satan's seed? Satan have kids? Um, I don't know, because it's the same word uh, as Eve's seed and his seed. There'll be enmity between your seed, speaking to the serpent, and her seed. Now, if he's referring to him as a snake, all right, nobody likes snakes. But if he's referring to him as Satan, Lucifer, I don't get that. Although, it does take your mind to Genesis 6, where it refers to um, beings, spiritual beings, I was going to say angelic, but fallen angels, whatever, that had relationships with human women. And perhaps it's referring to that. So I don't have an answer for that, but I have those, that surmising going on. And it said, there'll be enmity between your seed and her seed, and he, her seed in other words, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And of course we know because we've looked back and we looked ahead, we've cheated, looked ahead in the book, and we know that that was Christ. That, and even Paul talks about this, that if they had known, if the Jews and the Romans had known the plan of salvation, that Christ would die and be resurrected, if they knew that, they would not have killed him. Because Satan's plan was to wipe out the Messiah and stop God's plan of salvation. And so Paul even mentions that. I don't remember the passage, but he does mention that very clearly. If they had known, they would not have crucified and killed Christ. Because basically that kicked God's plan right, right off and finished it up. So, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's all he was able to do. So that was the curse of the serpent. God's curse on the woman. It says, again, didn't mention Eve. No, later on it mentions that uh, Adam named her Eve. But to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply, not add. Multiply. I'm not good with math, but I know the numbers get big real fast if you're multiplying. I will multiply, which means, in this case, abundance. I will multiply your sorrow and your conception. Um, when you bring forth children. And this is very disturbing to a lot of people and, and it doesn't seem fair, right? So what it's saying here is that I will greatly, God is saying this to Eve. This is a consequence of the sin, but this consequence follows through all of these trickle down, right, to all of us. I will greatly multiply your sorrow that word sorrow means your worrisomeness. And you think about this in the sense of, I mean, it, I'm not a Greek scholar, Hebrew scholar, I'm not a scholar at all. But if you think about this, Lisa has always worried more about the kids than I have. This and that, and some of it, I ah, just forget it, It'll, you know. So he fell off his bike and he broke his arm. So what, it'll be fine, it'll grow back, or you know, whatever. I mean, just guys are generally that way, right? Um, that's why we don't go to doctors, you know? 
So we're forced to go to the doctor. You pass out and you almost die. And then, yeah, okay, you better go to the doctor. All right, I'll, I'll go. But, um, so worrisomeness, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, your worrisomeness, and your conception, which again means childbirth and that. It says in pain, your conception in pain. And that word in Hebrew, in pain, comes is, is translated from a word that means it's usually painful, toil, painful toil. And it says also a pang. I didn't look up the word pang. I got a sense of what it means in English. But, um, but it does say whether a body or mind. So your worrisomeness and in conception, pain of body or pain of mind will be multiplied more and she hadn't even had eight kids yet. I don't know if she, how she could compare this, but God certainly knew that this was a punishment. And jump, jump in here with this thought too, was that their sins were both sins and despising God, but they were different. And I'm not sure, not only because they were man and woman, they were different, the, the, the results, the consequences, but they were different in the sense that sinning by being a victim, so to speak, not knowing and falling prey to someone's uh, sob story, whatever, that she was deceived and Adam went in with his eyes wide open and sinned. But so they're different in, in that way. And so I'm not sure if the, <clears throat> if the consequences of it must have been the same thing. So she will have this worrisomeness and physically or in mentally more pain in childbirth um, as you bring forth children. So that's one part of the curse for her. And then the other is another one that's controversial and, and uh, you know, in our culture particularly, especially nowadays, but it says your desire shall be for your husband. Um, and so that has been, you know, people look at it in different ways, but basically I think all of us understand uh, what the word teaches about this, and it's, it's just pretty much like I'm going to explain here. Your desire. Desire has many feelings to it, but what this means is a stretching out after, a longing, and so you can think of like, I really desire something, and you kind of stretch out to get it. You want it so bad. You put yourself out physically to reach, to drop what you're doing, and to pursue, to try and grasp something. Your desire shall be for your husband, that stretching out a longing for your husband. Now guys, don't get too flattered about that. Um, we like to be reached out to and wanted and needed. We thrive on that. But she will have this, her desire. Now you think about this before, neither one of them have job descriptions. All we know about Adam's job was that he had to name the animals. Beyond that, I don't know what they did. Certainly she didn't have a job description. She hadn't had any kids yet. Were they co-equal CEOs of something or, you know, they were just two people dealing with God and dealing with their sin and the consequence of it. So how, this is the way it went, that you will have this stretching out after or this longing for your husband. Now that could be good or bad. Negatively, that stretching out, reaching, longing for, interestingly, it's the same word in chapter 4, verse 7, where God talks to Cain, and he said, remember he said, sin crouches at your door. And that's the same word, that sin was stretching out to grab Cain, had a desire for him, had a longing to grab a hold of Cain, and that in itself is a good lesson, isn't it, about sin? A good thought to 
ponder. But so in the negative sense, with Cain, it's, a, it's bad. You don't want that kind of longing where sin is pursuing you, trying to grab you. Um, but in a positive sense, in a deep loving relationship, the only other place that that term is used, only three places, is in the Song of Solomon 7.10, where the woman is saying, I am my beloved. His desire is toward me. So in that case, the husband is reaching out for his wife, and she sees it as a beloved move on his part. So two things about her curse, and I'll have to quit here in a minute, is that there will be abundance of sorrow, worrisomeness, and pain, mental anguish, physical pain in childbirth and about childbirth and perhaps about raising kids. Um, and the second thing was your desire will be for your husband, which was new, but then it proceeds to go on and say, and he shall rule over you. So that's like, uh, you know, like a good and bad thing, perhaps. But nonetheless, it's a consequence. And it was a fair, just punishment consequence because it came from God, who is holy and without error and mistake. So let's just go over this, and then we'll be done. He shall rule over you. That sounds bad in our culture to say, the husband rules over the wife. But it means to be responsible for, and any of these things could be misinterpreted and misused. But he shall be responsible for you. He will have authority. He will have the leadership. He will have initiative over you. Um, and again, just like the other words, um, it also mentions judgment. I'm not sure exactly what that means um, as part of the, the uh, definition of the word. But these could either be positive or negative, that the husband will rule over his wife. And we know stories in our own lives. We've seen plenty of examples of husbands who are abusive and cruel or just plain old idiots with their wives. Um, but then there's also positive, because not only did God provide it, so we know it's positive, got positive in it for his glory, but the other part of the positive is there's protection, and there's wisdom, perhaps, and there's a, a, a non-worrisomeness that the wife, that the mother would have in childbirth, things like that. And interestingly, and by way of explanation, <clears throat> this rule over you, this rule word, was used many times in the story of Joseph. So that helped me to get a bigger, broader picture of it, where it, time and time again it's used, and where it says Joseph was put in charge, he ruled in Egypt, and then you know he ruled over this, and he ruled over that, and it was all given to him. It was positions that was a very positive position, say probably millions of lives perhaps, by him storing up the corn and the grain and those things for the, for the famine. It was very good, but at the same time, he was powerful, and he was the master of those who were under him. Except for Pharaoh, he had nobody to answer to on this earth. But then that it goes back to us, too, as men, as husbands, that we might think we rule, but we have an authority over us that we must not detest or despise, but obey. So let's just stop there, and uh, we'll pick up the uh, other things later. But so overall, I, I, what I come back with was I, as I have studied and read and thought about these things is there's so much depth in that little story. You know, the kid's story, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, telling the kids about the flood, you know, you got the funky little boat and a giraffe sticking his head out the window. And I mean, you know, it's those kind of, it's like, oh, you know, real light. And, you, and in a sense, you, 
it's easy in this thing of the, the Garden of Eden to say, yeah, it's too bad that they sinned, and yeah, that is terrible, and I agree. But there's so much depth here, isn't there? Um, and, and it's all proper, and it's all perfect, because God is the one that's doing it. It's not some judge that's a bonehead and makes a bad decision about something. This is how humanity was set up because of sin. And God also could say, this is good. And because I'm holy, because I'm just, this is how things are going to be and how they should be. So you could have all kinds of marches about, you know, women want to be, you know, equal with their husbands and all that stuff. And they're equal, but they're not, you know. Um, and uh, husbands are not equal with wives either. You know, I can't experience childbirth. Thank you. <laughs> but for what God did because of marriage, husband and his wife, husband will leave his parents, join himself to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. That, this works with that. And that's why we can't join the march about, you know, free the men from their wives or whatever. <laughs> uh, because God has done this perfectly, despite this bump in the road. It wasn't even a bump in the road of his plan. Christ was always going to die and save me from my sin by shedding his blood on the cross. Without me doing a blooming thing, I was destined because of a perfect salvation, if I believed to be saved. This is that perfect plan as well. God wasn't phased. He knew what was happening. We move on. But then we'll talk about Cain and Abel, because that does give a little bit of obvious difference between choices. All right, let's pray. Thank you again, Lord, for your marvelous word and Lord, I've been around the block a few times and I'm still learning and I'm still awed at how perfect your ways are and how matchless. Uh, it's just, there's just no way to, to come up with a better plan. Lord, help us to search you out and to obey and to walk with you and to give our lives to you daily, Lord, that I want nothing more nothing more than to be in your will and to be used and that's it and we look forward lord to to today and the years that you give us and we look forward more than all to be with you at the right time in jesus name amen thanks for sharing <laughs>